Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. for standing in for me last week last minute last week with a very appropriate message if you weren't here I'd encourage you to go to the website and, and listen to last week's message it's really quite indicative of where we're at at the moment and um, it was just a really encouraging and, is, and inspiring uh, message from the Lord the timing was perfect yeah with regard to the teaching a few weeks ago, I gratefully received an email that outlined what was seen as my unfair treatment of Seventh-day Adventism um, and my not making a clear distinction between evangelical Adventism and traditional Adventism. Um, two kind of factions within the movement that differ over a multitude of issues. One group leaning to a more biblical perspective and the other leaning more away as we saw that Sunday. Yet, by virtue of the name, and I think that there's probably a lot for us to talk about with regard to the issues that were raised on that day. Um, I think it's healthy for us to discuss um, the issues. Um, could I just say at, at this point, at least by virtue of the name of the movement, whichever faction, whichever section, whichever, which, whichever aspect of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, I would say that by virtue of the name of the movement, which clearly identifies its core beliefs, Seventh-day Adventism would suggest that its emphasis, just by its name, is twofold, right? Um, first of all, the Seventh-day which is the Sabbath or Sabbath keeping. Um, and then the second thing is the Advent or the second Advent, the, the return of Christ or Christ's second coming. These two things are highlighted by the, by the name of the movement, if you like. And it's funny that we're in this section of chapter 11 in the book of Acts. I suggest that we have to be careful about how we overemphasize any aspect of doctrine um, because if we overemphasize any area we can easily move off into an extreme um, in terms of our belief and practice so from a biblical point of view I would I would probably rather be known personally as a Christian um, I know most of the time that needs definition right um, but it's the term that was used of the early believers in Christ which is something that I think we should consider, particularly from our text today. Amen? So, would you join me as we pray before we get started? <clears throat> Father, thank you this afternoon for your desire to speak to us through your word. Thank you, Father, that it's your desire that we would, as the first commandment says, love you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, but also with all our mind. 
And um, your desire is that we would engage our thinking as we consider what you have to say. And Lord, I ask that you'd really help us today. As always, there's so many brothers and sisters, groups, churches, networks. Lord, there are so many that desire to understand you. And we are a part of that, that quota, Lord. We're individuals that are trying to come to a point where we appreciate you, not for necessarily who we want you to be, but who you reveal yourself to be in and through the scriptures. So please help us by your spirit, who's the great teacher, um, to get more of a handle, Lord, on, as Tim said earlier, on who we are as individuals that you've created, but Lord, more importantly, who you are, so that we can live in the light of who you are. So please help us, I pray, this afternoon, <clears throat> by your spirit. In the name of Jesus we ask, and for Jesus' sake, amen. My name's Robert, I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary Chapel, South London, and if you're joining us for the first time, as I always try to bring you up to speed, we're doing a, a series of teaching through the book of Acts, <clears throat> looking at the history of the early church. Today our topic is the believers first call Christians. The believers first call Christians, and we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 11, verse 19 through to verse 30. So I'm going to start reading. <clears throat> now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. <coughs> Recap, are you trying to get to heaven by doing good deeds? Are you trying to earn salvation based on your good works? Are you someone who has put your trust in Christ but feel the need to make up the difference? Because although Jesus died for you, 
you still feel that you have your part to play in saving yourself. Are you a Christian who is trying to stay saved by keeping the law? And feel that if you don't keep the law meticulously, you jeopardize your salvation. Well, these are some of the things that we talked about last time. Peter, having returned to Jerusalem after being away on an important mission to the Gentiles, was confronted by some who felt that it was necessary to trust in Christ by faith for salvation, which is good. But they also thought it necessary to keep the ceremonial law. Now, a light has come on. Not only for the Gentiles who are coming into the church, but also for the Jews, particularly these Jews who confess in verse 18, then God has granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Salvation for Gentiles as well as for the Jews. And now, there was no need for circumcision. There was no need for Sabbath keeping. There was no need for observance of the ceremonial law. Again, I reiterate some of the things already discussed. Now to today's text. Verse 19 Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over who? Stephen. Here's a question. When did the persecution of Stephen take place? Well, we are in chapter 11 now, right? If you go back to chapter 10, we saw Peter and Cornelius... You go further back, we saw Tabitha, and then we saw Aeneas. If you go back to chapter 9, that's where we saw the conversion of Saul, who was the one guilty of leading the persecution against Stephen. In chapter 7, we see Stephen standing up and defending Christ, remember? Which led to his persecution in chapter 8. So, We have to go back to chapter 8. Now keep your finger in chapter 11. We have to go back to chapter 8. And let's start by reading the end of chapter 7. Hope I'm not confusing you. Starting at verse 59. Acts chapter 7, verse 59. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Acts chapter 8 now, verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his, that is Stephen's death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Notice the next phrase, except the apostles. Now we're going to come back to that. So what we have is Luke going back in time to incidents that took place at the same time as the story that we have been following about Philip, Saul, and Peter, and so on. Here we have a flashback to chapter 8. So at Acts chapter 8, there are actually two parallel or separate sets of events taking place But Luke 
cannot tell both at the same time. So, <clears throat> what do we see? <clears throat> in Acts chapter 8, we saw Saul persecuting the church. In Acts chapter 9, we then saw the conversion of Saul. We saw Aeneas' healing. And we saw Tabitha raised from the dead. And we saw Peter and Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Now, where did these things take place? In different places, in one particular region that I'm going to show you in a moment. But notice, we collect all of these incidents on the left-hand side. Saul persecuting the church took place in Jerusalem. The conversion of Saul took place where? On the road to Damascus. Then we see Aeneas healed at a place called Lydda, and then Tabitha raised from the dead at a place called Joppa, and then Peter and Cornelius recently at Caesarea. Now, all of these things took place, and we looked at them specifically, in conjunction with Philip preaching in Samaria. Now, I have these on the right-hand side of the screen because what we're going to see is incidents that we made mention of but that took place in a completely different region or at least in a region that extensively became more separate and distinct. The Ethiopian official. And <clears throat> what we're going to see is on this right-hand side of the list, from Samaria through to Phoenicia, through to Cyprus, and then ultimately today, Antioch. Antioch. The list on the left are the things that took place in one region. The list on the right is that which took place in parallel or that which happened at the same time in another region. Okay, so back to Acts chapter 11. Based on our verse, which is verse 19, the persecution of Stephen caused a certain group to be scattered back then. While Peter was being faithfully used in Joppa and Caesarea, along the, the west coast, if you remember, others were being used elsewhere, even further afield, both happening at the same time. These are two parallel lines of history. While we have been following the adventures of Peter, those or these scattered because of the persecution of Stephen earlier, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Just so you can get an idea of where these places are that they travel to. There's our list again just on the left-hand side. <clears throat> our left-hand column took place just by that red circle, that red oval, in that tiny small region. kind of looks smaller as you zoom out and look at the map, right? But the new list on the right... On the, sorry, the new list on the right-hand side happened in this much, much wider area. Can you see Phoenicia? As it travels up, including Lebanon and parts of Syria. Cyprus, completely different location now. We're talking about the island just off the Mediterranean. And then Antioch, as you go even further north, a major city north of Syria, in a place called Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey. Now, we're going to come back to Antioch. 
These, in contrast to Peter, these, remember Peter was an apostle, right? These were just simple disciples who traveled further north into these regions. Now, I say they're simple disciples. That's an oxymoron, right? Because there's no such thing as a simple disciple. Do you remember Ananias? He was a simple disciple. Yet it was him who led, prayed for, and baptized Saul at his conversion. I would suggest that that was no light matter. With a, a great responsibility. And what a great responsibility we have today. Whenever we fulfill our Christian responsibilities, we're not just simple disciples. Especially when we realize that we're involved in the important role of serving the King of Kings, which is never a small or insignificant matter. That is to be a disciple. These disciples speak in the word to no one except Jews. That is not all of these disciples, but some of these disciples, they didn't share the gospel with anyone except Jews. That is some of these disciples. Verse 20, but there were some of them, that is, there were some who were also disciples, and there were men of Cyprus, which is an island. See it just there. And they were also from Cyrene, which is a city, check it, in Libya, which is North Africa. I wonder if Simon, do you remember he was the one that helped Jesus carry his cross? I wonder if Simon was a part of this group because he was from Cyrene. No one knows, it's just conjecture. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to have a look at the geography. This is where these Jews who went further north are from. They're Jews, but notice they're not from Jerusalem. Who, on coming now to our spot, which is Antioch, who come into Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also. There's a, part of these, there's a group of these disciples who speak to the Jews, but there's a group of these disciples who now begin to speak to those who are not necessarily Jews. And although they are Jews, and one of the reasons is because look at where they come from. These Jews are from the island of Cyprus, and they're from North Africa. And they're compelled to share with their own. That is... Greek-speaking individuals. Jews, yes, particularly. But remember our theme. The theme of the book of Acts is the gospel is spreading from Jews to Gentiles. As Paul mentions in Romans chapter 1, the gospel is for who? The Jew first, but then also to the Greek. And that's how the RSV renders the word Hellenist. It renders them as Greeks, possibly Greek-speaking non-Jews. There's a bit of a theological debate about whether it was Jews or individuals who were not Jews, but 
we will see and have already seen that the gospel is now going to those who are non-Jews, those who are not Gentiles. Can you see that the shift continues? It continues geographically, and now we're, seeing to, we're beginning to see it shift culturally. And it's by unnamed, unashamed, simple disciples, not apostles, disciples, who go far north now doing what? Doing the second part of verse 20, preaching, bringing, sharing, announcing, declaring, preaching, who? Not what, who? The Lord Jesus. Notice very often you will see now an emphasis on Jesus as Lord. Jesus as Lord as opposed to Jesus as Christ. Or Jesus as the Son of Man. Particularly when speaking to non-Jews. See, non-Jews aren't as familiar with the title, the Christ, which means the Messiah which is a very popular Jewish term. No, they're more responsive to Jesus who is Lord, who is master, who is ruler. Verse 21, and it says, the hand of the Lord was with them. Just disciples. Nothing special, not name brand, not any big somebody, just disciples. Check it, the hand of the Lord was with them. And what does this mean? The hand of the Lord. It's one of those cold words in scripture, right? If you go back to Isaiah chapter 48, it says, verse 12, Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel. Now who's speaking? God is speaking. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first, and I am also the last. Does that sound familiar? Revelation chapter 1. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth. And my right hand has stretched out the heavens. Does that sound familiar? It's the creation, remember? Genesis 1. When, when, when who hovered over the face of the deep? The Spirit. Now there's a connection between the hand of the Lord and... And the Spirit. The hand of the Lord is actually a code word for the Spirit. Look at Luke, Luke chapter 11, verse 20. Jesus says, But if I cast out demons, as he did, with the what? The finger of God, which I presume is a part of the hand of God, um, not, not, not literally speaking, I can't remember the other word. Um, yeah, not literally speaking. <laughs> But surely, he says, if I cast out demons with the finger of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, what is the finger of God? Well, we see the same instance made reference to in Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, where he says, but if I cast out demons by the what? By the Spirit of God. Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So... The hand of the Lord is a reference to the power of the Spirit at work. And look at the result. And the great number who believed 
turned to the Lord. You see the result of the hand of God. You see the result of the power of the Spirit at work in these simple disciples. A great number believe and turn to the Lord. And they didn't just believe, but their belief or their faith had effect, didn't it? It caused something. James chapter 2 verse 20 says, faith without works is dead. Or faith without a corresponding action is useless. The Lord working by his spirit, bringing faith by his word, a great number believe. And not only do they believe, but they repent. And they are converted. Some scholars argue that Luke, the writer of this book, was one of those who was converted among this very number. Second century tradition also suggests that Luke was a native of Antioch. Nonetheless, we do know that by the time we get to Acts chapter 16, Luke, the writer, stops referring to those that follow Paul as them, but begins to refer to them as we, as we went from here to there with Paul. So we're not sure exactly when Luke got saved or when he got converted, but it was definitely in between now and Acts chapter 16 because he begins to identify himself as being with and traveling alongside Paul. Now we're going to get to that. Verse 22. The report of this, that is this great number turning to the Lord, the report of this, it says in verse 22, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. So the news travels south up to Jerusalem. Those in Jerusalem had previously heard that Samaria had received the word. They had just also recently heard that Caesarea on the coast had received the word. Now it had exploded in Antioch. Things will never be the same hereafter. Antioch. This city was founded 350 years earlier by one of Alexander the Great's generals. Over the years, it became known as Antioch the Beautiful because of its fine buildings and by Luke's day was famous for its long paved boulevard which ran from north to south. And it was flanked by a double colonnade with trees and fountains. Although originally founded as a Greek city, it was extremely cosmopolitan, with a population of at least a half a million people. It had a large colony of Jews who were offered equal citizenship, along with Orientals from Persia, India, and even China. And it earned another of its names from this group who populated this area, and they called it the Queen of the East. Having been absorbed into the Roman Empire, its inhabitants included Latins as well. Thus, Greeks, Jews, Orientals, and obviously Romans, Italians, all formed a mixed multitude of which Josephus an ancient historian calls the third city of the Roman Empire. Now that's big things. 
the third city of the Roman Empire after Rome and Alexandria. And this was to become the location for the first international church. This would become the springboard for worldwide Christian missions. Look at the second half of verse 22. And it says, recognizing that stuff was popping in Antioch, that they sent Barnabas up there. Isn't it worth noting that the apostles didn't send an apostle? They sent Joseph, nicknamed Barnabas, or Bar, meaning son of encouragement who was a Levite originally from where? He was actually from Cyprus. The same area that we're talking about. Acts chapter 4 verse 36, it says, And Joseph, we've done this months ago, And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus. I think the apostles are beginning to get it. God is evidently working among the Gentiles. Peter recognizes his limitations according to his calling to who? Peter's called to the Jews. And without neglecting this new body of mixed believers and possibly wanting to assure themselves that, as, that all was well, in addition to helping nurture this young multicultural church, the apostles send a delegate. So Barnabas, verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God. When he came and saw the grace of God. When he saw, wow, the divine influence. It was evidently a work wrought by the Spirit. The hand of the Lord was upon them. The signature of God written with his own finger. And that's what we constantly need to pray for. That God would work by his grace. You know, so often I watch stuff that's done in the name of Jesus, that's done in the name of Christianity. And a lot of it is froth. A lot of it is just hype. Ain't no point me this afternoon trying to hype you. You know, if we're not moved by the eternal and cosmic things of God without me having to run up here and doing laps around the, the building and all the other stuff that I'm resisting the temptation to mention, if, if this is what needs to be done to hype you, you come to, you, you've definitely come to the wrong place this afternoon. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't get excited. It doesn't mean that we don't get lifted and don't mean that we don't get infused, but you can't top the hand of the Lord. You know, the scripture says that if the Lord doesn't build the house, those that labor, labor in vain. And we can do all the running up and down and all the humping and hyping and puffing and 
And yet it comes to nothing apart from the hand of the Lord. And this is what Barnabas sees. In unmerited fashion, we see divine enabling. You know, very often we hear today people talk about the great revival. Talking about a great harvest. I've been a Christian for 20 years this year, this month, 20 years. And I remember when I first got saved, one of the first meetings I went to, I heard all this incredible, tremendous, wonderful stuff about the big revival that's coming within the next six months. That's 19 and a half years ago. And I heard about it more times than I can count. And I'm sure you've, you yourself have heard about this apparent revival that's going to sweep the nation. And all now can't see this revival. Now, does that mean that God isn't working and God isn't saving people? Of course not. But on the level that it's being pitched at, it's, oh, we're going to have to knock the walls of the church out. We're going to have to hire all of the Odians across South London. We're going to have to, in order to put people, have to go out into Hyde Park and set up temporary structures and, because we're not going to be able to handle. Are you ready? For the great revival. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for it. Shouldn't mean we shouldn't even expect it. But to try to make out that something is happening when it ain't happening. No wonder people who are not Christians look at Christians and think, you're not strange, man. I mean, we are strange, right? The scripture says that we're peculiar people in, in Peter, right? But we're not supposed to be so strange to the point where we become unusually strange. That is apart from in a biblical sense. You know what I'm saying? And when the revival does come, We'll be able to identify it. We'll be able to see it and say, wow, the hand of the Lord is working. And it will be sustained. It won't be an overnight thing like sometimes healing, right? People will tell you, oh, you're healed in the name of Jesus. And, and then you go home and then the next day, you're back to where you was, back to square one again. And it was all hype. It was all psychosomatic. You know, you can get so worked up. And it's a mental state where you feel like you are healed. But then when you go home and sleep it off, the psychosomaticism, you find that, oh, I'm, I'm not really healed. Now, does that mean that God doesn't heal? Of course not. But I'm saying, let's not hype it. Let's not try to make something that it ain't. Just because I don't get healed, it doesn't mean that God isn't real. It doesn't mean that he doesn't exist. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't love me. Just read the book of Job. You know what I'm saying? And especially for us at this time, going through a, a, a difficult time, a challenging time, you know what I mean? Thank the Lord that right now we don't have to hype it. You see me coming I'm, and if I'm coughing and spluttering and my nose is running, you say, oh, Rob, you got a cold? I'll be like, no, I haven't got a cold. Me? No. But that's what so many Christians are taught to do. Call those things which be not as though they were. 
they say. Completely taking verses out of their context. I digress. We pray that the hand of the Lord would be upon us as the hand of the Lord was upon them. And again, this is in unmerited fashion. It's divine enabling. The harvest and the harvester together experiencing the power of the Spirit. Barnabas was excited, we see in verse 23, the second section, part B. He was glad and he exhorted or encouraged them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Notice, he was excited, he was glad, but he was also sober. Reminding these new converts about the need for perseverance. You see, the, you see the necessary balance? He must have been blown away as he come up and he sees all of these Jews, Greek-speaking Jews, p- potentially Greeks, saved and congregating a meeting together in the name of the Lord Jesus. He must have been like, whoa. And not a few, many. He must have been so excited. And it says that he was glad. But he communicates the need for them to remain faithful. This is fantastic. This is wonderful. But you know what? Everybody take a seat for a minute. Which is reminiscent of the parable of the sower or the parable of the seeds or the parable, I would like to call it, of the soils. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 5, Jesus said, Some, that is in this parable descriptive of the seed, some of the seed fell on stony places or on shallow ground, where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But the problem is when the sun rose up in verse 6, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. Now that's Jesus beginning to tell the parable and they don't really get it. And the disciples come back and well, what do you mean by that? Jesus then later interprets that by then saying in verse 20, at least this aspect of the parable, he says, but he who received the seed on stony places or on shallow ground, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet, He has no root in himself or in herself, but endures only for a while. For when, check it, for when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they stumble. Oh, how we need to be sober as well as excited, as many among us are experiencing. Verse 24, for he was a good man. That is Barnabas, and he's full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. See the result of being filled with the Holy Spirit and being filled with faith? Balance. Exuberance, liveliness, excitement, and enthusiasm, but also a sobriety 
a self-control, a moderation, a thoughtfulness, a seriousness. And look at the further result of the good, solid leadership of Barnabas. Second part of verse 24. And a, a great many were added to the Lord, or a great many more people, as a result of Barnabas's now involvement, a great many more are added to the Lord. Verse 25, so Barnabas, <laughs> so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Barnabas now finds himself out of his depth and needs to draw for reinforcements. Saul at this time is in his hometown after having to leave Damascus, remember, because of the death threats. And, and then the disciples send him back to Tarsus for his own safety. And that's where he is now. Apparently being off the scene for approximately, check it, eight to ten years at this point. We cannot help admiring the humility of Barnabas, who is quick to identify two things. One, his own limitations, but then two, also we see his willingness to share his ministry. He could have been like, look at my ministry. Yo, Barnabas, what's happened since you've been up in Antioch? Oh, well, when I came up, I had about X amount of people, but now, since I've come up here, I've now got double that. I mean, it's the work of the Lord, right? But, hey, look at my church. If you notice, right here, one of the things we try not to do, we try to avoid to do, is refer to South London as my church. That is myself, Pastor Ephraim, or Pastor Patrick. If you ever hear us say that, then you know either we're very tired or we've got something else on our mind, but we ain't never going to refer to South London as in an interview, my church. And again, these are things that you hear all the time. This is not my church. This is my church because I'm a part of this church. Where do you go to church? Well, my church, the church that I go to, the fellowship, the community that I'm a part of is in South London. But yo, it's not my church. It's Christ's church. We are his. You are not mine, or Pastor P's, or Pastor E's. You might think, well, Robert, that's not really that important. I didn't even see that as a big deal. Praise the Lord. We do. We do. Barnabas is willing to share his ministry, not trying to take all the glory to himself because of what's taken place in Antioch. Here is where we begin to see even more clearly the model for team ministry. Team ministry. This is the model that we follow here at South London. If you're new here, we don't have a senior pastor. Neither of the three of us have complete and full autonomy. We share the responsibilities of leadership as a team, as a group of elders, plural. And this model was started off by the disciples of Jesus. 
And we'll continue to see this pattern build and become established in the coming weeks, particularly here. Watch out for Antioch. Heavy. Another one of the reasons why Barnabas probably teamed up with Saul was because he was most likely aware of Saul's call. Do you remember the words of Ananias in Acts chapter 9? Ananias, that simple disciple. So, but the Lord said to him in verse 15, Acts chapter 9, go, that is to Saul. Because remember, Ananias didn't want to go. He was fearful of his life. The Lord said, go, for he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before who? Gentiles. Look, furthermore, kings and also the children of Israel. So it's one of the reasons why probably Barnabas saw it necessary to go and draw for, for Saul because he knew that Saul was called by God to speak particularly, specifically to Gentiles. And then also in that chapter 9, verse 27, same chapter, verse 27, but Barnabas took him, that is Saul, and brought him to the apostles, remember? And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road. I mean, anyone who's genuinely seen the Lord, literally, is someone I'd like to have on my team. You know what I mean? Now, you ain't going to find that today. So don't go looking for that person. Paul was, Saul was one born out of due season. He, if you like, completed that group of individuals who knew Christ in a personal way and then would go on to herald the kingdom of God. Now we do it, but we don't do it on the basis of an eyewitness testimony, do we? But they did, and Paul was included in this group. He saw the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, the middle part of verse 27, Acts chapter 9, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. There's something about Saul that Barnabas saw that I need this. I, I, not only do I need the help of this brother, but all of these other disciples they need the help of this brother. And all of those who still haven't heard the gospel, Saul is the man to share it with them. Because God has got his hand on his life. Imagine, God's got his hand on these people. And obviously, Barnabas is someone who's filled with the Holy Spirit and faith. And now he's going to draw for another brother. Who the hand of the Lord is also upon. What a combination. Two uppercuts and a left hook. See? Reasons why Barnabas would be encouraged to team up and link up and work alongside with Saul. Verse 26, and when he had found him, it seemed like he had to search high and low. When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church. See how this group is now identified? They met with the church and taught a great many people. So now we've got at least two churches clearly distinguished and identifiable. One up in Jerusalem, which is south. And now we've got another one in Antioch. And as I said, this church is going is gonna to be, begin to become a beacon to the nations. And it says, Barnabas and Saul are there and they're teaching. 
for a whole year, you know, the meeting with the church and the sharing with the church, these young and uninstructed believers were given a treat. Barnabas and Saul, soon to be Saul and Barnabas. They probably taught about Christ, consolidating the facts and the significance of his birth, his life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation, his gift of the Holy Spirit, his present reign, and also his future coming. I suspect these are the, are the this is the content of that which was communicated to these disciples, to these new converts. All of these things that I just mentioned about Christ are to be appreciated. Can I say none of them should be isolated and, dis- and distinctive <coughs> or focused on with extreme emphasis? We need the full counsel of God. We need to know everything there is to know that God would like to communicate. But we have to be careful that we don't emphasize one thing over another. We have to be careful of extreme emphasis. Notice that because of this well-rounded appreciation for the full counsel of God, these disciples, they are not identified as witnesses of Jehovah. They're not identified as after the name of an angel called Moroni. They're not known as Mormons. They're not known as Roman Catholics. They're not known known as Seventh-day Keepers. They're not known as Adventists looking for the the end, the, the final coming. Then, even though they were, they weren't known as Branch Davidians. Or they weren't known as Calvinists or Armenianists. They weren't known as Calvary Chapelites. Isn't it interesting that the name that they were given, check it, not even the name they gave themselves, but the name that they were given by others who observed their lives was what? Christians. Christians. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. I think it at at least only emphasized Christ-centeredness. All of those things that I just mentioned are important. But that's the point. All of them are important. And surely, when it is all said and done, that is the way that we want to be identified. As Christians, as those who follow Christ. Those who follow Christ. And there are times when you hear us harping on about the second coming. Oh my goodness, look at times. Israel, become a nation. Mm -mm, Europe coming together. Wow. AIDS. Break out of fatal epidemics. Earthquakes in diverse places. False teaching. False Christs. False anointed ones. 
be like, oh, definitely living in the last days, boy. Look at homosexuality. You get me? And you will hear us harp on that at a particular time. But then also, that can't be all that we talk about. How about the other aspects of Christian doctrine that are vital and important and have gravity? You're going to hear us, if, if we're Bible believers, if we are individuals who are following Christ, there's a whole heap that we ought to have to say. And again, not taking any one point to an extreme in terms of its emphasis. Verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Because Antioch is where it's happening. Verse 28. And one of them named Agabus, who we will see pop up again later in Acts chapter 21. Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius, or he weren't a false prophet, and he wasn't a prophet, capital P, getting ready to write scripture. No, he wasn't Ezekiel or Daniel, Hosea or Jeremiah or Isaiah. Mm -mm, he ain't that kind of prophet. He's, he's prophet small p. He, he can make a prediction led by the Spirit, but he's still got to be judged based on Deuteronomy 18. Anyone who makes a prediction, you have to make sure that what they say comes to pass. If, the, if it doesn't, you reject them. You ain't no prophet, fam. Come around here telling us about this is going to happen, that's going to happen, thus says the Lord. You've got to be careful who you listen to with regard to prophecy. That doesn't mean you reject it. You know what I'm saying? Initially, the Bible says we have to test all things, 1 Thessalonians 5, and prove it. And then hold fast to that which is good. So he comes up and he has his prediction. And in parenthesis, see, he made this prediction about this great famine. They're like, ooh. But look, it happened. And it happened in the time of Claudius. It was one of the Caesars, right? The prediction came to pass during this time frame, which was AD 41 to AD 54. It happened just like he said it would happen. So the disciples here in Antioch, based on this famine, they determined everyone according to his ability. Now there's a verse you won't hear harped on in, 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 in prosperity circles. No one ain't going to focus on that verse. You see, look, the, the disciples determined everyone above his ability, beyond his ability. How often do you hear you need to give Above, your, above and beyond your ability. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't. We should from time to time. And I'm saying with regard to our time, with regard to our talent, and with regard to our treasure, sometimes we're called to give above that which we can normally give. But we could never put that on individuals as a burden. We've got a need here at the church, so what we are expecting is for everybody to give above that which they are able. That wouldn't be right. That doesn't mean that we can't say we've got a need here and we're asking. 
based on what we do normally give, if you could give a little bit more. Now, how, how many of you heard, have, have heard us, us prob, have ever said that in six years? Because we try not to talk about money. But we're finding that we're getting to the point where we're realizing we feel rebuked by the Lord that we need to begin to talk about money because it's biblical, but in its proper place. It's one of the things as we're talking about membership that we're going to begin to talk about, begin to talk more about. But it says here that everyone according to his ability. Isn't that beautiful? No coercion, no manipulation. They're like, wow, man, this famine is biting our brothers and our sisters up in Jerusalem. Let's see what we can do to help them, innit? And they come together, they club together to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, particularly in Jerusalem. And they did so, sending it to the elders, the apostles who were there, by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Can you see how they really trust and respect Barnabas and Saul? They must have done to give them all this dough to carry carry down or carry up to Jerusalem. That says so much about the character of Barnabas and the character of Saul with regard to the way they related to these people. What a great testimony to the authenticity of not the leadership, not Barnabas and Saul, even though we see that, but what a great testimony to the authenticity of these believers. Just been saved a year, yet serving and sacrificing for their Jewish brothers and sisters who at one point weren't even sure whether or not they really should be in the church. (laughs) They give to their brothers and sisters who are suffering in Jerusalem. May that be our testimony also. Amen. As believers who see the need of others and minister to it. There we are at the end of chapter 11. Um, Next week we'll pick up in chapter 12. Amen. Shall we pray together? Father, thank you for thank you for your word and for the clarity of the scriptures. Thank you that truly they are God they are God breathed, the inspired, holy men of God wrote spoke, were moved by your spirit and you've communicated your will and your purpose and your plan through the Bible. Father, we thank you that you give us this appreciation for it because that's the appreciation that you have for your word. You said you've exalted your word above your very name and therefore we want to hold it also in high esteem and Father, as we ponder these things, as we think about these things, we ask that you would bring light, bring understanding. Lord, we see that as we travel through the book of Acts, that you're fulfilling your purpose, which is to take the gospel, the good news, from Jerusalem right to the uttermost parts of the earth. And it's wonderful for us who are at the further extremes, the uttermost parts of the earth right now, and we see its effectiveness 
And that 2,000 years later, that message is still being proliferated. And we also now have our part to play with regard to that message and its proliferation. Help us, I pray, to continue to pass the baton, to continue to see the message of the gospel shared, aired, as we saw by those simple disciples, preached in order that others might hear and that your hand would be upon them and that you would turn them, that you would cause them to to be faith-filled. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by your word and, and that you would help them to then respond in action, turning away from their sin and turning toward their saviour. Father, I pray that your word would become real to us and that it would also be life to us. Jesus said, Father, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God shall men live. Help us to truly live life that is worth living because we've been exposed to and fed by and nourished through your word. In Jesus' name I ask. And for Jesus' sake, amen. No time.